This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. Facebook's all-powerful founder rebooted the trillion-dollar company last week as Meta for a brave new virtual world. But the real-world mess it's made in the past and the present are now making more headlines than ever. So we ask a veteran reporter this week who's covered text development since before Facebook was founded, where is all this heading? I heard a great expert on artificial intelligence the other night uh, giving a lecture in which he compared Facebook and what it had been doing to Chernobyl. And will we really want to live in Mark Zuckerberg's virtual metaverse five years from now? Whoa, we're floating in space? Uh Who made this place? It's awesome. (laughs) Right? I thought I was supposed to be the robot. (laughs) But before all that, Radio in New Zealand marked its centenary this week, 100 years since the first ever radio broadcast here. And there have been plenty of tributes to radio staying power from stalwarts of the medium of the past and the present. And there have also been confident claims that radio will be with us for years to come yet in the digital age. But... Soon after he became chief executive back in 2013, RNZ's boss Paul Thompson labelled radio a medium in decline. So what does he reckon now? Podcasts have become a big factor the digital world. Uh, do you see any sort of potential troublesome spots ahead? <laughs> In my long time associated with radio, I've lived with this um, prediction that the demise of radio was just around the corner. It started with television in the early 60s, and it's gone on forever. But it's not going to happen, Corin. Radio is as powerful as ever. That was the radio veteran Bill Francis, who helped develop the news talk format back in the 1980s, which ended up being the main commercial rival to national radio, now RNZ National, and these days Bill Francis sits on RNZ's board. And the reason he was on RNZ's flagship news show last Wednesday was that it was 100 years to the day from New Zealand's first ever broadcast over the air. This is a test transmission from Otago University. Professor Jack speaking. Nice one, Professor. And RNZ listeners might have heard that historic clip on air during RNZ's special centenary celebrations this week, Aotearoa on the Air, 100 Years of Radio. And there's plenty more from the past century of radio on the RNZ website. But last Wednesday, Bill Francis was joined on Morning Report by a former Radio New Zealand broadcaster and chief executive, Sharon Crosby, who also reckoned that radio will be here to stay. I fervently wish that nothing will stop radio for another hundred years and I was really encouraged during the height of COVID when I heard that in Europe and America people had come back to radio, that radio had become uh, vital again in their lives and I think that I can't think of a better thing that if you were to invent it today, something you could have about you while you didn't have to hold it and gaze at it like the phone or anything like that that kept you up to date and informed I mean, what could be better? However, back in 2014, one of Sharon Crosby's successors as chief executive didn't quite have the same outlook. A few months into his stint, the current RNZ chief executive, Paul Thompson, told the Commonwealth Broadcasting Association in Glasgow that radio is in long-term decline. Multimedia was the future, he said, but RNZ was weak and almost irrelevant on the web. But it isn't now. 
Since then, Radio New Zealand has become just RNZ under Paul Thompson's watch to better reflect the fact that it is much more than just radio in the digital era. So what place does radio as we know it now have in the future? Radio adapts. Um, I mean, radio has always been a live medium. It has that advantage because, you know, a lot of digital media is live. Perhaps it's less about the future of radio and more about the future of audio and things like streaming and podcasts and time-shifted listening is becoming huge and it's going to get bigger and bigger and the terrestrial radio delivery may become less important over time but that the power of audio, which is obviously the core of what radio is, um, I think has a really great future but it's going to be different um, and it's never a binary thing where one day everyone's reading a newspaper and the next day no one's reading a newspaper, everyone's reading news online. What tends to happen is people add things to their media repertoire and keep doing some of the older things but also look to do newer things as well. So that's kind of where radio is at the moment, I think. I mean, we've just got some research back um, that we commissioned uh, from Cantar when we ask audiences of all ages, RNZ listeners of all ages, a lot of them are now taking advantage of time-shifted listening to kind of listen to the audio from RNZ when they want to rather than necessarily when it's live on the radio. And I think that's really quite a profound shift and a real opportunity. There have been headlines lately about RNZ losing audience in, in surveys. Is that what this is all about? Are people telling you why perhaps they're drifting away? Yeah, I mean, I'd make the point that RNZ's audiences are larger than ever because we have so many people coming to us on digital platforms and through our radical sharing of content with other media outlets. So our audiences are really strong. What the research is telling us is that there is a fatigue around COVID news, very um, relentless coverage of COVID because it's such a big story, is, is proving to be um, a, a turnoff for some. But I mean, I would point out that our radio audiences are really strong and engaged, and I wouldn't be surprised in the latest um, lockdown that we've had really strong engagement. But of course, we won't know that until the next survey comes out. In the listener piece, you talked about uh, delivering a shared experience to a mass audience via a radio signal will eventually be eclipsed by the rise of audio tailored to an individual's needs, new formats, platforms, business and funding models and presenters will change. What are you talking about there, particularly with regard to Radio New Zealand? The internet just opens up a whole new array of ways for people to receive and impart information. We're already seeing that podcasting, streaming, particularly streaming of music and time-shifted listening is going to be is really big for audio and that's only going to grow over time. Terrestrial radio through AM and FM, particularly FMs, will probably outlive both of us. You know, it's not going to finish anytime soon. So it's not a question of something being suddenly turned off. But I think the ability of people to actually exercise choice and shape their own media experience will in the end have a big impact on audio as distinct from radio. So personalised services, um, being able to supply people with content choices based on that Netflix experience of you like that bit of content, so you probably will like this, surfacing content, and just that ability for people to actually go in and listen to what they're interested in as well as what happens to be on, on live at the time. And I think, but I can't see that that power of radio which is around that intimate connection you know through your ears and being able to multitask while you uh, listen to great content great programming is going to change but the means of delivery certainly will shift probably where the challenges are are more around 
commercial broadcasters who have to figure a way of making the business models work in that new environment. And I do wonder whether subscriptions, audio subscriptions, will become more important. And maybe advertising in time will become less important. I don't know, but I suspect that'll be one thing that might happen. So people will stop offering audio for free, you think commercial radio operators maybe want to charge for it via online delivery? I think there'll be free services and I think there'll be increasingly paid services. I don't think it'll be people stopping providing services for free, but I think subscription audio services will be a feature. And they're already there, right? I mean, you know, we've all got Spotify. Most of us have got Spotify or Apple Music subscriptions. There's a willingness to pay there. And I think that'll become more important. Free and universal aspect of old-fashioned radio broadcasting, if I can call it that. Is it still important to you? I mean, you, it's free to receive as long as you've got a receiver uh, over the regulated airwaves, no need for an account with an ISP or anything, anything like that. Is that important to you? I think it's massively important because, you know, a core principle of public broadcasting, and it's in our charter, is around this idea of being accessible and available, and it's to everyone. And you're right, not just those who uh, have and can work a, a, a smartphone, not just those who have a, a, you know, a great broadband connection for their home Wi-Fi. Radio has still got that ubiquitous power. Um, so I think the future is certainly from an RNZ and a public broadcasting perspective, continuing to keep terrestrial radio as strong as we can, but also leaning into some of those other things as well. We've got to be able to do both. And that's one of the challenges that we have as an organisation. We're still investing in AM infrastructure. And, you know, that's nearly 100 years old, that technology. And we support a lot of the wider radio industry's uh, AM services by hosting their transmission. Um, and we've also got to be able to invest in digital delivery and apps and those customised and personalised services. So there's a bit of a tension there in terms of how we, we uh, determine where we're going to invest our money. And is Radio New Zealand's RNZ's role as a lifeline utility play into that as well? Because last 10 or 12 years, um, you know, most of that you've been the chief executive here, been a hell of a lot of crises in New Zealand that have required emergency broadcasting. And uh, does the government get that? Yeah, I think it's still really important. And we saw through um, you know, the Christchurch quakes, the Kaikoura quakes, um, through COVID itself, that in times of crisis, radio really comes into its own live radio, its immediacy, its ability to adapt your programming and, and take the latest news, get voices, get in the field. Radio really comes into its own. And we even know with the 1pm media, COVID media conferences, again, that's really been um, a, a rallying point for audiences around live radio. So I think it's, it's really important when there's an emergency sometimes power will go down, which may impact on you know, the internet and your iPhone. Radio will still work in those circumstances, um, as long as the towers aren't knocked out, of course. So I think that in terms of a country like New Zealand, which is vulnerable to these disasters, um, terrestrial radio is still really important. It is interesting, though, that cell phones, uh, smartphones are becoming more important in terms of civil defence alerts. There's new technology being built in. In your listener piece marking the centenary, Paul, you also uh, said, look, radio remains relevant. And as evidence, 80% of people 10 years and over listen every week. You said it's a competitive, adaptive media. Um, but just a few months into the job, as Chief Executive 2014, you went to the Commonwealth Broadcasting Conference in, in Glasgow, our preferred method of content delivery, radio is in long-term decline, that the the listenership had dropped from around 90% of 15-plus adults, so not quite apples with apples, in 2000, had fallen to 79% in 2013. So 
if it's still 80% and was roughly the same in 2013, is it in long-term decline? Do you still think that? That structural decline is part of the reality and challenge of radio as in terrestrial radio. But it's yeah, but commercial are companies strong. are saying radio income underpins some of what they do, the ones Absolutely. that have a mixed model. Yeah, but I mean, I'd, go, I'd go to the William Gibson quote, you know, the future is here, it's just unevenly distributed. You just need to look at lower levels of engagement around younger audiences, in particular around live radio. They're still listening. I see that in the latest New Zealand research from GFK, um, 67% of 10 to 24-year-olds listen weekly, which is still really high, right? But that compares with 83% of 45 to 66-year-olds. But my my speech, and thank you for bringing it up, was really a rallying cry to RNZ as an organisation at the time that needed to broaden its scope and become more multi-platform, and that was what it was designed to do. Well, in that speech, you pointed to one effort that was actually begun before you became the chief executive of the wireless website to target an, uh, an untargeted audience by RNZ, I guess, which was younger people, uh, only a, a small uh, effort with a few staff, really. But it was shut down after a while or folded into the rest of RNZ. kind of didn't work, and part of it was because it didn't have any radio element to it. It was separate from, from RNZ. Now, when you proposed a youth radio service uh, in, in early uh, 2020, that became very controversial because you wanted to take the FM frequency currently occupied by RNZ Concert. Was that you acknowledging that actually radio is critical even for the younger audiences because the, that new plan, which hasn't gone ahead, did involve a youth radio station based on uh, essentially music and then other programming to be added later. Absolutely, but it's not about just one thing. So our plan around... Um establishing that youth network was underpinned by the fact that a, an FM audience would be successful and we would then be able to build that, that audience across to other platforms. But we knew radio would play a really important role in that. So absolutely a key endorsement of the remaining power of, 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 of radio. Looking ahead, that possibly might not be the case in five or 10 or 15 years' times and more Digital initiatives around younger audiences may prove to be really successful. That if you can put something on the radio, it will give you a head start in terms of audience engagement. And that whole controversy was predicated around how important radio still is to New Zealanders. But taking away a radio service to an audience that's grown up with it and expects it, mistake in the end? Uh, well, we didn't get it across the line, and I think it was um, a really sobering experience to... Uh, be confronted with that opposition. Someone, one of our board members, made the point to me, um, and I think it was a good point that we're fortunate to have the loyalty and commitment of that concert audience as concert listeners. I mean, it was bruising, but it's a hell of an asset for us as an organisation to have those people who feel so strongly about concert. And obviously, we're really looking to make sure concert. Um, and the future of the station is assured, obviously, after that. Has the audience gone up after the controversy? It went up over the, after the controversy, um, which is great. I mean, you know, and it's, it's a positive thing. It's easing and probably going back to uh, the level it was before the controversy. Um, so perhaps there's a signal there in terms of us continuing to refresh and improve the station. Well, in terms of the public side of radio, it's all in play. As we know, the government now has a business case for a public media entity. Decisions not likely to be taken by Cabinet until next year. Now, we understand, but we believe that business case has been done. This is obviously for the politicians and not for you, but what 
are the things that must be maintained uh, yep. from the current radio services um, that will take us into the next 100 years. I don't know whether the policy is going to be implemented or enacted. I think the minister said that a decision will be made in February. Uh, radio is going to be an enormously important part of any new entity. Whatever happens around media policy and whatever decisions are made by the government, RNZ on air and online is going to be a vital part of the future. And if a new entity is created, you know, our services will be central to the success of that organisation. And RNZ, Concert RNZ National, RNZ Pacific, our website, um, all of the things that we do will be carried into the new entity and will be really pivotal to it. And there may be even opportunities, new opportunities around radio and audio in that bigger entity if it's done correctly. So, you know, I'm really keeping an open mind and reserving judgment until we see the shape of the policy. But I think it could be a time where New Zealanders get a much more comprehensive public media service, including all of the goodness that radio and audio can provide. Well, it's been fun as the centenary has been marked to hear people saying it's an enduring medium and will carry on into the future and and so on. Um, But should we also acknowledge perhaps there's been a bit of a dark side to the history as well, like in the past, hasn't always been as inclusive of some groups as it should be, particularly Māori, some tokenism and and broadcasting, you know, censoriousness. We've heard about the the RNZ um, book of banned songs (laughs) being rolled out with some pretty odd, uh, odd choices down the years. Also, I mean, if we take it out of RNZ to, to talk radio, private radio, I mean, John Banks has, has been highlighted. Uh, he said some fairly ghastly things. He got the boot uh, earlier this year from a private media company and things were brought up that he'd been saying 25 years earlier in a former iteration of that same station and a very, very prejudicial comments about gay people and so on. Um, is there also a bit of a dark side that we ought to acknowledge in this um, centenary radio? Well, it's a technology created and used by humans, so there'll always be moments where bad things happen. Overall, the contribution, the positive contribution of radio to New Zealand life is enormous. You know, 99% of it's just been incredibly positive and constructive. Um, it was revolutionary technology in, it, in its time, and it connected Um, an isolated nation to itself, you know, all the different provinces, our geography, and it connected an isolated nation to the world, and there's so much good about that. There'll always be moments where people make mistakes. Day to day, I mean, the radio industry in New Zealand is just an enormous force for good and has been since since the 1920s, which is an amazing record. When um, Prime Minister Savage opened the uh, the new tower at Titahi Bay, he made an interesting speech where he talked about radio um, as a revolutionary technology to bind humankind together in a promotion of peace and democracy. Radio's fulfilled that role and has kept New Zealand connected and informed and supported our democracy. But, you know, two years after that speech, we back on the radio to uh, announce the beginning of World War Two. So um, it's human frailty that you're referring to, not radio itself, Colin. Well, I, but does it change... What do you think the mission is? Because at the moment, the worst of all this kind of communication is online. Online. Um, do you worry about insulating radio from it or setting it up as a bulwark against it? Do you talk about it or is that just regarded as outside noise? Radio should carry on independent of all of that. We're a public broadcaster. Our charter is all about supporting a cohesive nation. It's about providing an independent and impartial 
trusted news service. So those conversations are central to how we operate within RNZ. We think and talk about that all the time. It's, it's a really uncertain time. There's a lot of fear circulating. The big global tech platforms are disrupting the world. They are a conduit for hate and misinformation. The, one of the best antidotes to that is um, a really vibrant, independent local media sector. And I think we just have to keep the faith that the, the work that we do as a public broadcaster is enormously important to kind of provide that counterbalance to some of that hateful stuff. There sometimes those um, that uh, negative um, public dialogue is confined to quite a small group and it doesn't represent the vast majority of people in my view. So it's just keeping it in perspective as well. Um, you know, people have asked the question recently, you know, how can we make sure that New Zealanders trust news and journalism? And the answer is to make sure that there's a range of really reliable, trusted, sustainable news sources in New Zealand so that people can exercise choice and they don't have to just listen to one station or go to one website to get their news, but they can go across a range of websites. So that's the big challenge that the government's got. How does it create that strong, enduring ecosystem? That was Paul Thompson, the chief executive at RNZ. And also he was re-elected recently as president of the Public Media Alliance, the world's largest global association of public broadcasters and public media companies. And there's plenty more about the centenary of radio in New Zealand and a wealth of great audio from the archives on the RNZ website. Just look for the title, Aotearoa on the Air, 100 Years of Radio. As Paul Thompson said there, radio these days is up against several other media for individuals' attention, including online services available on digital devices. And while radio has had to adapt to new technology down the years, the online services these days are changing faster than ever. It is time for us to adopt a new company brand to encompass everything that we do. To reflect who we are and what we hope to build, I am proud to announce that starting today, our company is now Meta. Earlier this month, that was how the powerful founder and chief executive of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, suddenly announced a new name for his trillion-dollar company. The Facebook social network, which now has more than 2.5 billion users, will still be known as such, but along with WhatsApp and Instagram, Meta will be the parent company. And Mark Zuckerberg's new plan is what he calls a metaverse, a virtual world for us all to socialise in digitally in about five years from now. And here's how he introduced that idea in a special video as a cartoonish avatar of himself. Whoa, we're floating in space? Uh -huh. Who made this place? It's awesome. <laughs> right? It's from a crater. I met in L.A. Uh, this place is amazing. <laughs> Boz, is that you? Of course it's me. You know I had to be the robot, man. I thought I was supposed to be the robot. <laughs> Whoa. And as part of the rebranding PR package, there were also videos of contrived chats between Mark Zuckerberg and his own employees. So one of the most important aspects will be live service games that launch updates and new downloadable content regularly, like Echo VR, Beat Saber, Onward, Pistol Whip, and more. Beat Saber has a passionate community. Oh, I love Beat Saber. So do I.
By the way, Beat Saber is a virtual reality rhythm game created in the Czech Republic, set in a futuristic world where you slash the beats of adrenaline-pumping music with a digital sword as they fly towards you. But it seems that Facebook even talks to its own people like this. He is part of a leaked internal HR video for the US-based staff of Facebook, who suddenly found themselves working for Meta earlier this month. sure to review what's changing on the people portal and decide what benefits you'll need for 2022 if you don't actively enroll your current benefits will carry forward except for your fsa contributions and who wouldn't want to work for meta but while mark zuckerberg was pointing to a new company with an upbeat new forward-facing vision facebook and its founder is also facing a pr nightmare right now in the form of all the fallout from the facebook files Whistleblower Francis Hogan teamed up with a PR agency in 17 separate media outlets and her leaks have made headlines all over the world about Facebook failing to confront the damage that it knows it's doing to its users with bullying, hate speech and misinformation. And instead of confronting that meaningfully, the company has actually tried to suppress it all. Delivering this year's BBC Wreath Lectures in the UK, which are yet to be broadcast, Artificial intelligence expert Stuart J. Russell from Berkeley in the US was reported as saying that what has happened at Facebook was worse than Chernobyl as a wake-up call. And there to see it was Rory Kathleen Jones, who earlier this month retired after covering technology for the BBC since before Facebook was founded in Mark Zuckerberg's university dorm room. And Rory is also the author of the recent book Always On, Hope and Fear in the Social Smartphone Era. So... Should we be hopeful or fearful about that future and about Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse? I think we go through this with all new technologies. I mean, we went through it with uh, with radio, for heaven's sake. Um, people thought that that would corrupt youth. And obviously television, I grew up in, in the age when parents used to say to children, why don't you switch off the television and go do something, something more useful instead? This is, a, frankly, a more, much more powerful, much more immersive, much more interactive technology, which has its pluses and definitely its minuses. And we've seen that in recent weeks with what we've learned about Facebook, the, uh, you know, the most powerful of those social networks, which uh, I describe as in the book as forming the social smartphone era, because it's the combination of those networks with these brilliant devices that uh, has forced through so much change. So we're, we are seeing the damaging effects. Um, I heard a great expert on uh, artificial intelligence the other night uh, giving a lecture in which he compared Facebook uh, and what it had been doing to Chernobyl as a kind of wake-up call <laughs> to the dangers of this, uh, of this particular technology, which may be going it a bit. But... Um, yeah, I am concerned. I share people's concerns, but I still feel uh, that A, it's inevitable, and B, that the, I'm a glass half full person. I see lots of positives to this technology, particularly highlighted by what's happened over the last 18 months, where, frankly, those of us who've been locked, as uh, as I have been for long stretches in, in, in my loft in West London, uh, wouldn't have been without that kind of connectivity. In your book, you recall an interview with a Facebook executive and you observe that the, the company it's founder were not arrogant but didn't seem to need 
feel the need for external advice. And this is many years back, right, that you had this particular encounter. But I wonder, is, is that still it? Are they incapable of looking at themselves and thinking, are we the baddies? There, he has got a track record, Mark Zuckerberg, of being, to be charitable, a bit late in recognising the power of his platform and its capacity to cause harm. I, I don't know if you remember, but very shortly after Donald Trump was elected in 2016, uh, he was at some public event where he just laughed at the idea that fake news on Facebook could have played any role in the election. And he had to kind of take that back. He reminds me of the the kind of the boy in The Sorcerer's Apprentice with the, the mops and the, the ever-rising tide of water completely incapable of controlling what his his creation has become. Um, and the other concerning thing about it, of course, is that he has got almost unlimited power. He's not like any other chief executive. He's got a sort of controlling state, the way the, the share structure works. He He's sort of unsackable. Uh, I mean, it, it served him very well in the early days. I mean, when I first met him uh, in 2008, it was just four years in, uh, and I was foolish enough to suggest that he should have sold up when he was offered a billion dollars for the company. Of course, now <laughs> he was 24 uh, years old at the time. That, that was not that. Yeah, he was 24 years old at the time. Uh, he could have relaxed. Uh, he could have kicked back. But he said, "No, no. What would I do?" And of course, it's now a trillion dollar company, or it, it is at times a trillion dollar company, but. It was that single-mindedness which which built Facebook. That when when it, whenever he was told, you know, to bring in quotes, adult supervision, to do things differently, he had his own vision. I I, I think the interview you're referring to was with a guy called Chris Cox, mm-hmm. who was his sort of uh, sidekick and is still at the at the company and really important. Uh, and he told me back in 2010 that Zuckerberg was like a a man from the future who comes back and tells us that everything's going to be cool and everything's going to be awesome. Um, and the trouble is, it, we no longer quite believe that everything in, in Facebook's world is quite so cool or awesome. At the time, also, we wouldn't, no one could have assumed how much this platform and people's um, people's social media habits and online habits would actually intersect with the news media, with journalism. Uh, a lot of people within short order getting their news via Facebook feeds. Uh, and Another startling part of your book is that early on there was quite a few people, I think, even within the company, saying that this actually wasn't a tremendously popular function, and some even suggested turning it off. They didn't like all these recommendations from either sources or friends and family, you know, popping up and intruding on their um, online experience. But it really has become a critical avenue for the news media, which has affected the viability of commercial media companies all over the world. Yeah, and it's been a very difficult relationship because um, it's Facebook has not been, quotes, a constant sort of friend, as it were, to the news media. It blows hot and cold. So I think news organisations are in a very difficult position because they know that this is the way to reach a huge audience and they've got to be there. But policy can change in a moment. So there was a, an incident a few years back where Facebook said, right, video is going to be hugely important. We're going to have a pivot to video. And news organisations, many of them, started changing their workforces so that there were loads of people working on video and other people were kind of heaved over the side. And then uh, after a few months, Facebook had a look uh, and, and revealed rather sort of 
guiltily that uh, actually nobody's watching those videos so we're gonna we're gonna change again and all those news organizations which had made those big investments uh were in a hole and of course they couldn't afford to be in that kind of hole uh the, the imbalance one of the huge problems of course is the imbalance of power if you think of a for instance a regional newspaper uh, organization in wherever in in the uk in new zealand uh wherever uh it's just such a minnow compared with the might of facebook with its two and a half billion users mm. now when in recent days we've seen mark zuckerberg himself uh, almost steve jobs style uh, announcing the metaverse and the rebranding of the company. Uh, I mean, when he says this could be within five years, we'll be living in this metaverse. I mean, the the, the actual communications, the the video, just seem kind of laughable almost. Um, him and his mates in that that sort of cartoon household, and and also there are interviews we've seen internal ones where he's talking to his own colleagues and they're having these extremely inauthentic conversations about how awesome everything is going yeah. to be and you want to laugh at it. However, d- does the news media have to assume we've got to take this seriously? We could be operating in a kind of universe of which Mark Zuckerberg and his company will be huge in shaping it? I do think we have to take it seriously, even though you know I share some of the scepticism around it. So, I mean, this is not a a new idea. I mean, uh, I don't know if you remember something called Second Life, which was a kind of virtual world. Mm -hmm. uh, And a news organization did actually post some poor reporter to that that, that virtual world. Uh, Reuters uh, took one of their reporters and changed his name to Adam Reuters and made him live in Second Life and report stories from there, which didn't last long. The truth is we are living more of our lives online, uh, as you know, as my book shows, you know, the, the, the amount of time we spend uh, looking at our phones, uh, WhatsApping, Facebooking, Instagramming, TikToking is growing and growing. At the moment, it's a 2D experience. What Mark Zuckerberg is saying is it will be a 3D experience and a much more immersive experience. The trouble is we, you have to get people at the moment, accepting the idea of putting on a headset to do that. So far, that has proved to be quite a niche activity, the sort of uh, wanting to spend time in in, in virtual worlds. And I'm still a bit sceptical that without some huge technological breakthrough that makes it less clunky, many people will want to do that. I mean, is there every possibility that people themselves will reject it? They just won't want it, and they won't want... Uh, Facebook and that company with its track record having an even bigger role in their lives or alternatively will there come a tipping point where governments, regulators say we cannot put up with this sort of dominance it's too it's too dangerous it's too anti-democratic if that's not too dramatic to have one company with all this influence on the technology we use Well I certainly think that there'll be a lot of pushback at, at, about Facebook, sorry, Meta running the metaverse. Interesting to see that Mark Zuckerberg has very much been stressing, oh, this is going to be a kind of open source democratic space where, you know, no one com- company will control the standards. He has got a head start in this vision. He, we, there was some scepticism when he bought Oculus, the, the virtual reality company, but that now seems to have been a good move. So he will have um, the power to shape that metaverse if it is going to become a big thing. And I think regulators will have to be uh, looking very closely at, at, at his influence. Well, if we turn back again to the news media and the role of, of journalism and its future, 
I mean, you mentioned there that Facebook blows hot and cold on the media and journalism. But I wonder, at times they seem very ambivalent to it. But at all times, and like all the big tech platforms, they've been very anxious not to be put into a corner of given the responsibilities of being a publisher. They say we're merely a platform. We've seen Australia, our near neighbours, uh, really confronting uh, the likes of Google and Facebook and pretty much pushing them into the position of having to pay uh, Australian news media to uh, run and distribute their stories. Journalism media has a social function and that they actually have to do a bit more because of the influence they wield over it. Well, yeah, I mean, that was very interesting, that Australian case, because the the sort of wise people of the internet, as as it were, uh, whether or not they liked Facebook, thought that was a terrible idea that, you know, you you couldn't force people to carry your material, uh, which effectively it was doing. But Australia's sort of gamble seemed to to come off and has, I think, inspired governments around the world who will be looking closely at that. In the end, though, it's going to be pocket money to the likes of Facebook and Google, and they may, you know, they may grumble about it, but they won't be too worried because they won't see it as a major threat to their business models. These are two businesses which what they've captured in an extraordinary fashion is the mobile advertising industry, the, the fuel for, the, for the, the whole sort of mobile internet, which obviously is a huge business. And while they've got that kind of control, they won't worry about being asked to send a few dollars uh, to this news organisation or that. Yeah, mobile advertising used to mean, you know, a sign on the side of a van being towed around town and parked by the railway station, didn't it? Not anymore. Yeah, I mean, the fascinating thing, I was looking the other day at what Facebook said in its IPO when it, it floated its shares back in 2012. There was a risk factor in that document saying, well, you know, as 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 the world goes mobile, maybe, you know, our advertising won't work in the mobile world. Uh, and of course, it very much did. And it became the way it made money. And that is why Google and Facebook are such hugely powerful companies today. That was Rory Kethlin jones who retired from the BBC recently after more than 20 years covering technology. And he's the author of a brand new book about all that, Always On, Hope and Fear in the Social Smartphone Era. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but there's also more in this week's Midweek Media Watch. If you missed it, Hayden Donnell looked at coverage of the vaccine mandates kicking in and an RNZ documentary in which Guy and Espiner confronted the country's drinking habits and his own, and it struck a chord across the media. Mike has just texted and he says, Guys, you wouldn't believe it, but this show has stopped me going to the supermarket right now to get my daily booze. Wow. I've just driven out of the car park. I've been listening since you began. Cheers, Mike. Thank you for that, Mike. Sheepers. That's in this week's Midweek Media Watch, available for you on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, our section of the RNZ app, or it's in our podcast feed, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll be back with Midweek Media Watch at about 10.30 next Wednesday on Lately with Karen Hay, and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.